This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. It's time for the question of the day, and it's simple. Do you approve of how the government has dealt with ongoing blockades? Yes, you think they've done a great job, or no, you think they've done a poor job. Now, you can vote on Twitter, at CKNW, or you can call us on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 604-331-2899, and leave your vote there. Good morning, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Roads have been blocked. Rail lines have been blocked. The entrance to RBC legislature was blocked. And those same tactics were used across the country by those in opposition to pipeline projects that run through Wet'suwet'en territory. So how do you describe the government's response on all levels? It really depends who you ask. Now, you may say that it's been too soft. Where was Trudeau's leadership when this problem was escalating back in February? And why doesn't Horgan strongly condemn and uh, condemn those actions? Perhaps you fall on the other side of this, though, and you may say that you support the leniency or patience that both leaders seem to have extended to these protesters, as both have said that they support the right to protest. New polling shows that Canadians do feel very strongly about what is perceived, it seems, to be a lack of response by Trudeau, and that's reflected in new polling that's been released by Ipsos And joining me on the phone now is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Daryl Bricker. Daryl, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Nikki. What we're seeing here is that 60% of Canadians do not approve of the current government response. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so we've seen the Prime Minister's personal approval levels fall by five points over the last two weeks. Now, that's not a collapse, but it's certainly not uh, going in the right direction. And it's the lowest point he's found himself uh, since the election. That's right, because we have seen that change since the election. So his his approval rating is down. What percentage of Canadians fall into that category of being in the strong disapproval? Uh, I don't have it sitting right in front of me, but I think it's at least a quarter to a third. So it's not like people are uh, in the position where they're saying, I'm feeling ambiguous about this. Uh, we're seeing growth in the people who are obviously the most disappointed. Uh, but uh, the, the thing that's interesting on this is it's not consistent across the country. Even though people have some disappointed disappointment in places like, for example, Quebec and Ontario, the level of disappointment isn't as high, and the numbers are going into the higher 40s. So a lot of this is being driven by what people are thinking in Western Canada. Now, it's interesting that you do look at geographic location. Where are people most disapproving uh, as opposed to more approving? Did you look at any other factors, such as correlations between uh, an individual's ethnicity or their socioeconomic status when it came to how they felt about government response? Well, age is, is definitely playing into this, and the Liberals tend to do a bit better with younger Canadians than older Canadians. But particularly on this issue of uh, of the protests and the blockades, younger people are certainly more sympathetic to uh, uh, to the blockades than older people. Um, and uh, But it is interesting when you take a look at what people think about the blockades. Uh, that number uh, is uh, going in the negative direction as well. So that's up, uh, up around 63 now and it continues to climb. Uh, and uh, it's one of those rare issues that we find in Canadian politics these days when it's just about every every region feels about the same. All all regions are, 
are basically uh, disagreeing on this one. So it's um, it's it's it's, a, it's an issue that's kind of unified opposition, if anything, across the country. <laughs> the irony of us being unified in our opposition, eh? Yes, absolutely. But uh, and then when you take a look at uh, the idea of the police actually intervening uh, to settle the dispute, again, a fairly strong uh, support uh, in the in the low sixties across the country saying that they support uh, 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 more authoritative sources moving in and resolving some of uh, some of these blockades if they don't uh, if if they're not eliminated through negotiation. Now you have a long history of doing a lot of this polling, and you're very familiar with these trends. How is this issue comparing to other? I don't want to use the word crisis necessarily, but other big, big problems that have faced Justin Trudeau. Well, I've I've go back to even other governments. So I sure you know, yeah polling back during uh, during OCA and uh, certainly uh, during the I don't know more movement and and uh, what tends to happen with public opinion. Uh, is it starts off fairly sympathetic and then it tends to harden. And so what we're seeing now is a hardening of opinion where people uh, are seeing this less through a lens of being uh, specifically about politics in one sense, but, but more importantly about being Aboriginal, about being indig- about Indigenous rights. And they're now looking at it as more of a, um, more of a law and order issue, which is where these negotiations and, and what was actually agreed to are going to become particularly important. So answers like, you know, we're not going to tell you what was in the deal or, uh, we're not going to be able to discuss exactly what it was that uh, that we uh, that we talked about with the uh, with the people who were protesting, and what the future is going to look like. Not being able to create a level of certainty around any of this is not going to do any of those governments any good. So, if you're a politician, then the strategy is you better get on top of an issue quickly because, according to the polling, you might actually have a little bit of public leniency in the beginning, but that's going to harden. It tends to go against you, and it's when the issue moves away from being about uh, uh, Aboriginal reconciliation and starts becoming more about law and order. Uh, the public's, uh, public's perspective on this gets a lot firmer a lot faster. Could we th- say that perhaps that's, um, I would say, maybe because people have more personal experience with their understanding of law and order as opposed to Indigenous relations? I imagine that when you do polling on Indigenous relations, people aren't as strong one way or the other. Well, they tend. one of the things that we've seen over, over time is that level of sympathy for doing something on behalf of the Aboriginal community, particularly when it comes to quality of life, has actually grown. So in our last poll, not this most recent one, but the last one we put out on the um, on the the, uh, the blockade, seventy five percent of the people who responded said that uh, it should be a priority for the government to do something about this. So there there's no there's there's a, a pretty deep reservoir of support for doing something on behalf of Indigenous Canadians. But the question of of what one does in order to uh, get that. Um, that uh, that need recognized. So, for example, blockading ports as they were doing in Vancouver, or blockading railways as they were doing here in, in Tyendinaga in Ontario, uh, people don't see that as an acceptable way of expressing uh, a need for you know redress or a need for reconciliation. So uh, that's when you cross a line and you move into another territory, as I said before, which isn't no longer about those issues, and it starts becoming about public order. Which, by the way, Nikki. Uh, there are certain issues that are seen as absolutely core to a government's uh, uh, um, ability to uh, maintain public support. And one of them is your ability to maintain law and order. And if the public thinks that you're no longer in control of it, it really raises questions about your ability to govern in general. 
For from your experience, what advice then would you have for protesters if you could give them advice? You've done a lot of polling in your day and you know how public opinion swings. Would you suggest that they move away from this model of blocking ports and blocking roads and blocking railway lines? Well, in the end, it depends on what you want. (laughs) So if what you're doing is you're trying to attract television cameras and and through that process, or radio programming or whatever. It's certainly working, that process, isn't it? Yeah, alienating the people that you're supposed to be reconciling with, keep at it. Um, but if you're interested in uh, creating a situation in which you can have a, um, a reasonable discussion and you can work through some of these issues, the, the Canadian public is telling us through the surveys, this is not the way they want to be approached. Daryl Burker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks, Nikki. Some really interesting stuff there. When you look at the facts and figures, how people respond to what protesters have been doing and how people respond to the reaction from government. And interestingly enough, when we examine those polling figures, a little bit of advice can be given to both politicians and both the protesters themselves. We're going to get into this more on the next side of the commercial break, and we're going to go to the open phones as well. So keep your phone nearby, and of course, you can always give us a ring on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ or 604-331-2899, because this is also our hot question of the day. Do you approve of how the government has dealt with the ongoing blockades? Yes, you think they're doing a great job, or no, you think they're doing a poor job. And you can vote on Twitter as well, at CKNW. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. A government bill in India has sparked violence that's left 46 people dead and hundreds injured. This story is an international one, but it's also an interesting examination of history, how interferences can change the narrative that surrounds relations within a country. Generally speaking, it's the result of tension between Hindus and Muslims. But how far back in history can we go to explain this latest wave of mob-driven bloodshed? This is the sound of mob violence in India. Violence sparked by protests against a controversial citizenship law. The death toll in India's capital from riots last week between Hindus and Muslims has risen to 46. In the worst violence in decades, the city has been rocked by days of clashes between Hindus and Muslims. And the spark to all of this is a controversial citizenship law, which grants amnesty to illegal non-Muslim immigrants from some Muslim-majority countries. And that led to mass demonstrations with people saying it discriminates against Muslim immigrants. But things turned violent when a politician from the ruling party warned authorities they had three days to stop the protesters or his supporters would. Soon, rival mobs clashed in riots that spread across the northeast of Delhi. Victims from both communities ended up side by side in the local morgue. The citizenship law at the center of this violence is the CAA. That's the Citizenship Amendment Act. And basically, it's a bill that allows access to Indian citizenship to illegal migrants of nearly every religious group except for Muslims. My name's Anne Murphy, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia, and I'm also director of the Center for India and South Asia Research, which is part of the Institute for Asian Research in the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. 
So the CAA was passed in December of 2019. It immediately inspired protests across the country. So I'd like to focus on that first, that these are protests, peaceful protests. Uh, people engaged in at universities, in public, across the country in India, but then they were met with repression and violence. So the violence has been really enacted by the state in its suppression of peaceful protests. And that's, of course, just brought about more and more protests. Now people are not only protesting the act itself, but they're protesting the ways in which the state has responded to those protests. So what is it about this bill that has stirred up so much anger? So the CAA declares that otherwise would-be illegal migrants from um, nearby countries, which are Muslim-majority countries, that religious minorities from those countries can get an expedited path to citizenship in India. So that excludes Muslim religious minorities and persecuted minorities. So this is clearly distinguishing in the law between differentiated paths to citizenship based on religious identity. That has inspired massive protests across the country because India is a secular state, in theory at least, at least in its inspiration and in its um, articulation and its founding. And so defining citizenship differentially according to religious background is fundamentally against the principles that India was founded upon. So that's why there's so much concern. That's why people are on the streets, because what's happening today is unprecedented in its assault on the secular nature of the Indian state and on and it's directly an assault on Muslims. Fear. As tensions remain high in Delhi. The national capital, a battleground. Violent clashes between Hindus and Muslims have rocked the city for days. Entire neighborhoods ripped apart as mobs roam the streets. The riots have been centered in the northeast of the city, in largely Muslim neighborhoods. So why are Muslims being targeted? Dr. Ann Murphy said it's more complicated than simply saying, well, there's always been tensions between Hindus and Muslims in India, to explain these recent events. Yeah, and that's very commonly done, and there's a lot of um, use of history today to try and explain the situation like, oh, this is how it's always been. And I'm a historian, and this is what I do for a living, and I must say with emphatically that that's just not the case. This is not the story that has to be there. It's always the case that when we see conflicts, we can think, oh, this is how it is, you know, just a natural progression from an underlying issue. But we always have to stop ourselves and actually be more critical. So if we look critically back at the history of Hindu-Muslim relationships and also relations among all the different, many different religious communities within India, it is not the case that it has been a story of conflict. It is the case that there have been occasional conflicts, but those conflicts have not characterized the Hindu-Muslim relationship overall. One thing we do know is that there were particular ways in which the British governed India. If we look back to colonial history, we do see an exacerbation and an intensification of the idea that there were two very separate and communities that were in conflict. And this served, obviously, British colonial interests. They were invested in um, their own position as the rulers of India. They justified their position uh, in that role as governing above the fray. And they positioned themselves this way. So they part of the argument was that Indians are internally so divided that we have a role to play in governance. 
And so you can see, actually, over the course of colonial history, how conflicts that would emerge that weren't necessarily about religion at all came to be seen as religious conflicts. And so this narrative was constructed in the 19th century that you have these two kind of two separate communities that have always been in conflict. But if we look back to the Mughal period, so pre-British rule, we see that there were complex negotiations that took place among religious communities and an incredible cultural synthesis that occurred during the Mughal period where Sufis, for example, became very interested in yoga. There was so much happening, exchange um, between Muslims and others and others and Muslims and others and each other. So a kind of dynamic pluralism. But when the British came, they came with European experience. So partially there was this effort to justify their rule, but they also came from the European context where there had been so much conflict over religious identity. There had been the religious wars, Catholic and Protestants that had defined the European experience. So when they came to South Asia, I think it just was almost unimaginable to them that such diversity of religions could coexist without there being a kind of fundamental conflict. And really, That is, as a historian, we must have to say that this is where we must look to understand how we got where we are today. British rule ended, but the logic of British rule did not end. And many of the ways in which communities were imagined persist into the present and have now become really politically useful to a group of people who want to seize power and keep it. So Modi's law was inspired by a narrative that was created during British colonization, rather than by the much longer standing history of the country. Exactly. It really goes against everything in in a fundamental way that has been India. And that's what I think so many Indians really are mourning. And that's why there's so much protest. So that India is still there. People do not want to lose it. The India where there is and can be peace and diversity and appreciation and pluralism. It's essential that we help it to survive, that we all recognize what's happening. We have we see a fundamental change happening, um, and that's why people are on the streets, and we must recognize that something fundamental is happening. Dr. Murphy, thank you so much. Thanks for calling and thanks for covering this. It's so important because I love India. It's a part of my life and my family. And that India cannot be lost, which shows us this pluralist and dynamic and vibrant way of we can live together. Uh, And it cannot be lost to us, to the world. India is now turning its focus on who is politically responsible for the outbreak in violence. The riots that have left 46 dead, over 200 injured. The opposition had one target today, Home Minister Amit Shah. MP after MP of the opposition demanded his resignation and forced the adjournment of the House. Matters reached a point where there was a minor scuffle as well in the Lok Sabha. All through this, Amit Shah maintained a stoic silence and an unfazed smile. Tonight the question, who's accountable for the riots? But first up, let's talk about the drive for a local police force in the city of Surrey. Now remember, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, this was his big deliverable for the voters in Surrey. He campaigned on this thing. He said, I want to get rid of the Mounties, bring in a local police force instead. The B.C. government has now given approval to that local police force. The mayor is a happy man. Here he is. Surrey is a city that is close to 200 or 600,000 people, 600,000 people. 
And we are the only major city in the country without a city police department. And the time has come for Surrey to have a police force of its own. Where accountability begins and stays within our city, residents and business owners. The time has arrived, and some would say it's been long overdue for Surrey to have local control and responsibility of its policing. Today, I am here to announce that in just over one year, we've moved from a unanimous council motion to full reality on our promise to the citizens of Surrey. Far quicker than even I thought possible, we have received the final approval required to establish the Surrey Police Board. This is the final step to guarantee that we will now have our Surrey Police Department. Surrey's uh, Mayor Doug McCallum there. But here's the question. Should there be a referendum on this now? Before they get rid of the Mounties, do you want a referendum on the city of Surrey and a local police force? Phone me on that right now and tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Let's check in with Surrey City Councilor Linda Annis. Councilor, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure always to be on your show, Mike. Yeah, you think there should be a referendum, right? Absolutely. We've had more than 42,000 people in Surrey sign a petition saying they don't want to transition from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Department. Clearly, uh, it's very divisive in our community. The 42,000 is actually more votes than any one of the councillors that are supporting the transition got in the last election. Okay, well, you just heard the mayor say there in the clip we played that there was a unanimous vote at Surrey City Council to get rid of the RCMP and go to a local police force. That included yourself, right? I mean, you voted for this. It did, but what I want to say is that none of us, uh, the ones that have transitioned away from uh, the mayor's uh, Safe Surrey Coalition and myself, who was from... Uh, a different party, none of us voted for lack of transparency, for not a good policing plan, and for an open checkbook. That wasn't part of the deal. That's not what the residents of Surrey want. Okay, so you you regret voting for it now, I assume. Absolutely. It was a a mistake. Um, We, uh, the RCMP, are doing a fabulous job in our community. The only thing that they're missing is the number of members that they need. We don't have enough RCMP members in Surrey. We've got 843, and yet in the mayor's plan, he's actually recommending that we have less police officers in a city that's growing 15,000 people per year. That doesn't make sense. Okay, when you say it was a mistake for you to vote to get rid of the RCMP and bring in a local police force, what do you mean it was a mistake? It was a mistake for you, what, to believe the mayor? No, what the mistake was, what I was advocating for was a change in our policing plan. What I wanted to do was look at the overall policing model and see how we could police better in Surrey. That did not mean necessarily changing the police badge. It meant finding a a model that would work better in Surrey, which meant getting more police officers. You know, if you compare us to Vancouver, they've got more than 1,400 police officers serving Vancouver. Surrey's 85% the size of Vancouver and growing, yet we have 
two-thirds of the members uh, that Vancouver has. That yeah. math doesn't make sense to no, me. I, I agree with you there. There's something wrong with that picture. There's more crime in the city of Surrey, too. they got a higher crime rate. Uh, let me ask well, you this. Go ahead. Well, I'd like to point out that, you yeah. know, McLean's Magazine did a survey on violent crime, and in actual fact, Vancouver, Abbotsford, and Langley had more crime than Surrey, violent crime, that is. Uh, and yet, you know, we have uh, not enough police officers in Surrey, and Surrey's okay. as big as Vancouver and Burnaby and Richmond combined. Geographically, right. it can be very challenging for any police force. Okay, what do you got to do to get a referendum up and running? I mean, if McCallum and his majority on city council don't want to hold one, how do you get one going? Well, in the end of the day, it's a provincial decision, and policing falls under the province, and I am advocating for all of the MLAs in Surrey to advocate at the ledge to get this referendum off and going. It's a very divisive yeah. issue in Surrey. It's something that needs to be resolved. Uh, we can't keep going on like this, uh, and we need to decide what? one way or the other what the residents of Surrey who elected us uh, want, and, and that's the direction we need what, to be going, not what the direction you, of politicians. What do you say to the mayor when he says, we already had a referendum in the city of Surrey on this, it was called an election, and I very clearly campaigned to, on a promise to bring in a local police force, and I won, I won big. The mayor got less than 15%, that's 1-5% of the popular vote in Surrey. 15% does not give you a clear mandate to be ch changing uh, police forces. That's one of the biggest decisions as a council we will ever make in the city of Surrey. We need to make sure it's done right and with the full support of the residents of Surrey. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. All right. That's Surrey City Councilor Linda Annis. She voted in favor of the local police force in the city of Surrey. She wants to do over now with a referendum. I don't think she's going to get one. The coronavirus outbreak now and the situation on the ground in Italy. The World Health Organization has warned the world is now in uncharted territory when it comes to coronavirus cases continuing to spread. One of the hot spots is Italy. Let's go there now and check in with Eric Regulli, the very fine Globe and Mail a correspondent in Europe. And I'm pleased to welcome him. Hi, Eric. Thanks for doing this. Oh, pleasure, Mike. I appreciate it. What's the latest there on the ground in Italy? Numbers, no, death, death count going up, right? Yeah, the numbers aren't looking good. So at uh, last count, uh, we had 2,263 cases and 79 deaths. Um, the scary part is that is up, the caseload is up more than 400 since yesterday, oh. and the number of dead is up 27. So, I mean, this, Mike, what's happening is, is, the, is the number of, of, of confirmed coronavirus cases is going up by several hundred every day. Over the weekend, it went up 50%. Um, so I'm not seeing any sense that this is slowing down. Now, obviously, they're testing more. So they're finding more, um, but it doesn't. There's no indication yet that it's slowing down. Yeah, the situation in Italy, as I understand it, the, the mortality from this particular virus, the people who die from it, are typically older people. And Italy has an aging population. I understand, right? So does that make Italy particularly vulnerable? Yeah, it sure does. Italy, I think, well, it's got the lowest birth rate rate in Europe, and I think it's got the highest, at least in Western Europe, and the highest percentage of 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 elderly, uh, I don't think anyone under the age of 60 has died from this. They've all yeah. been in mostly, uh, in most cases, probably 95% of the cases in their 70s and 80s. 
a few in their 60s. Almost all of them had underlying conditions. The ones who are vulnerable have have um, pneumonia, who have you know poor lung capacity. That that's what's happening. Though young people are, there's a few young people who are getting infected as well, which is also scary. Okay, speaking to Globe and Mail correspondent in Italy, Eric Regulli, one of the older people in Italy, people may know him, his name is Pope Francis, he's 83 years old, and people may have seen uh, pictures of him kind of sneezing and coughing, Eric, he tested negative for it though, right? Yeah, he did, but the strange thing in this story, Mike, is that is that um, the Italian press reported that he tested negative, the Vatican itself. Um, today did not say anything about it, which only oh. raised more speculation that, you know, maybe he is really sick. Uh, he's 83. He's uh, he, Part of uh, one lung was removed when he was a young seminarian a long, long time ago. He has not been healthy. He's been canceling all his public uh, appearances. But the Italian press said he, he, he tested negative for coronavirus. But that's not the point. The point is, is that his coughing in public um, just raised anxiety among Italians that something really bad is happening in this country. How is the government handling this? Are parts of the country under lockdown or anything, or what's happening? Uh, That's a good question. Um, It depends what part of the country you're talking to about. Um, In the north, I think they're doing the right thing, though they were a bit late. They quarantined 11 small cities and towns, and that's covering about 50,000 people. I'm just reading now that they're thinking of extending what they call the red zone because the caseload is increasing there. Uh, The North is pretty much shut down. The universities are shut. The schools are shut. All the public events are gone. There's football, uh, soccer games being that are playing, but with no fans. Um, The hotels in Venice, are, the bookings are, are down uh, 50%. The problem is in the south, in the Rome, where I am, There's it's it's coming here. There's 11 or 12 confirmed cases, but nothing's being done here, and I'm really upset about it. I mean, there's it seems to be there's no shutdowns. The public schools are open. Everything seems to be functioning. I mean, there's fewer tourists in Rome, for sure. I mean, the streets are emptying out, but you know, nothing is officially closed yet, which I find very odd and disturbing. Okay, speaking to Eric regularly, he's in Rome right now. Eric, what is what is the mood on, on the ground in Rome today? Like you mentioned that the outbreak seems to be more intense, obviously in the north parts of the country, not in the south where you are. But are, are people scared? I mean, do you see fewer people on the street? What's it like there? I'm definitely seeing fewer people on the streets. I'm starting just in the last couple of days seeing people wearing uh, masks, not many, but a few. I mean, Italians don't normally wear face masks like they do in in Japan and Hong Kong. Um, There is a little bit of hoarding going on, not like the North. In the North, uh, there's pictures of supermarket shelves just emptying up. There's a little bit here. I mean, we're guilty of it ourselves and our family. We've We've been stockpiling a little bit. I mean, not crazy, but, you know, uh, okay. canned goods, that sort of thing, uh, some medicines, just in case. Okay. Um, we've all, we've also made some plans to, to leave Rome, but it gets really bad wow. to, to go to a country place. Eric, thanks for taking the time, and my best to you and your family there on the ground in Rome. Thanks for doing this. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Mike. Bye-bye. You bet. Thank you. That is Eric Regulli. He is the Globe and Mail European correspondent based in Rome, Italy, with the latest on the coronavirus. Yesterday at the B.C. Legislature, Attorney General David Eby said the NDP government's going to bring in a new law that would make it illegal for any government to pick the pocket of B.C. drivers effectively by taking money out of ICBC and putting it into the bank accounts of the government. The liberals were the masters at doing this. This was so sneaky. This was like a tax grab that the liberals used to do on you. The same time they were going around, saying, I'm not raising your taxes. I remember Christy Clark used to get a repetitive strain injury, patting herself on the back, saying, oh, I haven't raised your taxes. She was taking money out of ICBC and cranking up your ICBC bill at the same time. That's a tax. No matter how you address it up, that's like a stealth tax. That's what that is. Now, EB yesterday said they're going to make it illegal uh, to do that again in the future. Here he is. It suddenly and a bit unexpectedly for many raises the question of how surpluses should be treated in order to avoid finding ourselves in a crisis again in the future. I believe we need to do all we can to prevent future government from diverting surpluses away from ICBC. The previous government treated ICBC like an ATM, year after year taking a total of $1.2 billion of optional capital out of the corporation. Okay, yeah, they took uh, over a billion bucks out of there. They siphoned it out of ICBC like a gas thief. And I think they're doing the right thing by making that illegal. That should never have been allowed in the first place. But let me tell you something. This is all politics, too, though. You know that, though. You know that's what's going on. This is like a shame and blame game here being played by the attorney general. He wants you to think that the liberals are to blame for everything that's going wrong at ICBC. Let me tell you something. This government's been in power for three years. They've had lots of times to kind of time to kind of fix this thing. I think there's more they they can be doing to fix ICBC. Let's check in now with Aaron Sutherland from the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Aaron, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me here today. So what do you think about that idea? The government says we'll pass a law so nobody can take uh, take that money out of ICBC again. Is that the good thing? Yeah, you know, I I think it, it'll likely be a good thing, but I more than anything, it's a moot point. You know, when we look at ICBC's financials, you know, they've lost more than $3 billion in the last three years alone. Right. And the next three years, they're projecting on the sale of insurance to lose another $700 million. So it's, it's not like I there's going to be... I thought they said they were going to be back in the black. Back in the black only from their investment returns. So they're projecting oh. to make a lot of money off their investments. Uh, when I see the economic headwinds we're facing, I think about the coronavirus and other challenges to the international economy, I would treat that skeptically. And so when you look at how much money they're making or projected to make from the sale of their insurance, they are going to lose money year after year after year. Uh, and and again, it, it calls into question, you know, okay, great. Don't let government take take future dividends. There aren't any coming anytime soon. What are we doing to improve the affordability of auto insurance? This does nothing to help that. And that's where, again, we need to start looking outside of ICBC. And frankly, we need to give British Columbians a choice so that they can shop around, find those savings, uh, and really, again, start to put a little bit extra money in their pocketbook. Right. Well, yeah, I know you represent the private insurance companies, so you want your people to get a, a piece of the action. I can, I can understand that. But what about some of the stuff that EB is doing here? 
to put out this dumpster fire, like going to no-fault auto insurance, which he says is going to save a fortune. If they can cut all the lawyers out of the mix here, save a ton of money. He says they're going to save so much money, they're going to freeze your auto insurance rates this year and give you, what, was it next year, 20% cut? Is that what he's promised? Yeah, and we've heard those kind of promises before. It was only a year ago that they brought in a similar round of reforms, said everything you know was going to improve everything. Uh, Lo and behold, that didn't work out. Uh, So just before the next election, rates will go down. Uh, whether they stay down over the longer term, that's anyone's guess. And, and again, just based on their financials, I, I think um, drivers are going to be in for an unpleasant surprise after the following election. Same thing happened oh. in 2001. ICBC gave out rate rate rebates and, and, and things like that leading into the 2001 election. And right after that, uh, rates jumped 18%. So I think drivers have every right to be skeptical. Um, and let's also not forget, you know, rates are up, I think, 25% in the last two or three years alone. So they're giving a little bit yeah. of it back to you, but they've taken a heck of a lot from us in the last few years. Uh, they're more or less, you know, bribing us with their own money, hoping we'll keep the ICBC monopoly. Uh, and nothing government has done to date, nothing ICBC has done to date, improves ICBC itself, improve, you know, makes it more efficient, makes it more innovative. We still can't buy insurance online. You listed a lot of things in your column today about all the other innovations that have been brought in other provinces that we still don't have access to in, here in BC. And a big right. reason for that is because of ICBC's monopoly. And there is a big cost associated uh, with the big blue giant over in North Vancouver. Okay, I want to ask you about some of those other things maybe ICBC could be doing to improve customer service and maybe reduce premiums for people, but I think you were right to kind of point out the political timetable of this thing. The next scheduled election is the fall of 2021, and the government is saying they're going to cut your auto insurance premiums next year. So in the months, in the in the run-up to the next election, that's when they're saying they're going to cut your auto insurance premiums. If you don't think that's political, you know, you're dreaming. That's politics all the way. And by the way, this is really interesting. If you renew your auto insurance before the, the cuts kick in, the government's saying, we'll send you a rebate check for your, for your overpayment on your car insurance. So imagine that. They're going to be ramping up to an election, and ICBC will be mailing out checks to people. I'm getting deja vu on this thing. I've, I've seen these kind of tricks before, you know, but it's a, isn't it effective, though? I mean, if people get a check from ICBC, I mean, they go, oh, man, this is awesome. Uh, David Eby's doing a great job. Yeah, you know, I, I hope British Columbians have longer memories than that. Uh, but again, the fact speaks for themselves. ICBC is going to be cutting us checks. They're going to be trying to, you know, make us believe in them again and, and think that they're the best game in town. But they're going to be doing it at a time when they're going to lose $270 million next year on the sale of insurance. They can't actually afford to give you those checks. They can't actually afford to reduce the price of their auto insurance. Their financials simply don't back it up. And so, uh, again, when I think about what does it mean long term, rates may drop next year. Uh, but you know they're probably going to jump right back up again uh, the year following, and that's a concern. And you know this is sort of a history we've seen with ICBC, where they tell us one thing, and lo and behold, at the end of the day, another thing happens. But unfortunately, it will be after the next election that we ultimately find that out. And again, nothing we've seen to date is 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 improving ICBC itself. And and why are we not giving drivers the opportunity? to make their make decisions for themselves, to shop around, to find savings, to see if there is a better alternative out there, another well, company that could sell them the same exact insurance at a lower price. Well, the government would say the reason they're not opening up ICBC to private sector competition is because you'd pay more if they did that, because provinces with private insurance pay a higher rate than uh, provinces with with uh, public insurance. I know you dispute their numbers, right? 
Yeah, and and if yeah. that's true, then why are they so worried about opening it up? Just yeah. open if 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 other companies and other insurers are more expensive than ICBC, open ICBC up and prove it. Because yeah. if they're right, nothing would change. But if they're wrong, drivers will start saving money, and that's what this is all about, or what this should all be about. How do we improve the price impact of ICBC for drivers? How do we okay. improve the affordability of auto insurance? Okay, I don't think they'll ever do that. Not Certainly not an NDP government will never open up basic auto insurance to private sector competition. I don't think they will because, for one reason, this is a union-allied government, and ICBC has got how many employees they got over there? Five thousand? Uh, close to six thousand. Six thousand. Twice as many as any other insurer their size in this country. That tells you everything <laughs> you need to know right there. Yeah. Okay. Six thousand employees, and they're all unionized. So you know, I don't think the ND this an NDP government's going to be going anywhere near that. But here's some other stuff, and I wrote about this in the newspaper today. Other stuff I think they could do to just improve service over there. And one is online renewals. Now, the government says, well, we'll get there. We're looking at it. We're studying it. we got a task force. And, you know, maybe we'll let you do online renewals in the future. I mean, this is not rocket science. I mean, can't they just, why can't they get that up and running? I mean, can you renew your auto insurance online just about everywhere else? Pretty much everywhere else in this country. Uh, And yeah, like you said, it's 2020. I don't think we need another study or a task force to tell us whether or not we should be able to shop online. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't mean ICBC has to sell it to you directly. They could do that through a broker. There's a myriad of ways they could do it. But for God's sakes, just put it online. <laughs> give drivers that convenience. Uh, and, again, let them, let them you know, use their iPhones or just from a click of a mouse so that they don't have to go you yeah. know, into the office, wait in line, and, and that whole rigmarole. Well, right. I think they'd save money doing it too, wouldn't they? I mean, don't you, wouldn't you cut the broker out? You, you could, the broker again, there's a variety of ways you could do it. You could do it ICBC Direct. You could do it through the brokers. So, you know, you, you, you type it into Google and whatever broker comes up first, you go in there and you buy it from them. It, you know, there's a savings there and there's a convenience there as well. Uh, and again, it's, it's yeah. 2020. It's high time ICBC kept up with the rest of the world. You can do every other financial transaction in your I, life. I think, I think some of the, the easiest proof you could, you could present to people to show how easy it would be to actually do these online renewals is that when you go on the ICBC website right now, they have an online insurance calculator. So you can sit down at the ICBC website and you can plug in all your information, you know, your dri- your drivers, your driving record, where you live, what kind of car you drive, and it'll tell you what your premium is. The only thing that's missing is a little button to click buy. You can't buy it. It'll tell you everything else except you can't buy it. And, and why is that? It's because ICBC knows you have no choice but to purchase it from them. They don't have a competitor or another company breathing down their neck who is going to go online, who is going to you know, do something that they would then lose your business. So they'll make a monopoly so they don't have to innovate. Yeah, that that's kind saying? of a. I think that's a typical theme of monopolies right across the world. Is no. innovation really isn't their strong suit, and what, what ICBC is no different. What are some other products they could be offering, like that other insurance companies in other jurisdictions offer, like you know, per kilometer insurance, which I've been reading about. How does that work? Yeah, well, it's it's exactly what it sounds like. It's you pay per kilometer that you use, and so you know this exists in other provinces where if you don't drive very far, you're only paying for when you're actually in the car using it. Uh, they've also got um, usage-based insurance or telematics, which, if you're comfortable with it, monitors your driving behavior and then gives you a discount. But they're looking at that one, too, they said, the telematics, Oh, right? ICBC's got trials on everything. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> and they've had these trials going forever, but it's 2020. Let's get with the program. Get on with it. Yeah, ex- exactly. And yeah. if people are comfortable with it, make it, open it up to them and give them that opportunity. The, but the, per, the per kilometer, like... The per kilometer insurance sounds pretty cool product to me because if you don't drive very much, why should you pay through the nose for your insurance? And so if you could calculate, you know, according to the distance that you drive. Now, ICBC will say, 
Well, actually, we do offer a form of that because I think it's if you drive less than, is it 5,000 kilometers a year, they give you a discount? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. exactly how you would have done it in the 1970s, and that's how they still do it today, <laughs> right? Like, it's, oh, 5,000 kilometers, and that's it. But you can get much more specific. You could charge people per kilometer. And if you think about families with more than one vehicle or people who you know use only a certain vehicle in, in the wintertime and another in the summer months uh, or people with collector cars or, you know, um, I think about people like my grandmother who barely uses her vehicle. Uh, you know, I, she doesn't come anywhere close to 5,000 kilometers a year. Why is she paying so much for auto insurance when, you know, but she's she gets, barely But doesn't that. she get a discount now for she, going under 5,000? She 5, would get that discount, but she's not coming yeah. anywhere close to that. So let's tailor something a bit more specific so you think she should get a bigger discount? Yeah, she right. she drives her car to and from church on Sundays into the grocery yeah. store. Like, you know, we should we should tailor a product to her that she can then go in and find and find the, the, the product and the price she wants. ICBC doesn't have to do that for her because she can't go anywhere else. She has to take whatever it is they're selling, they're, they'll sell to her, and she pays a heck of a lot because of that. Again, it's just another cost of ICBC's monopoly. And, you know, I, I agree with you. We're, we're unlikely to see choice in basic auto insurance in the near term. Why are we not seeing choice in optional? You know, this is yeah. insurance for your car. Why do we need a government monopoly selling us well, insurance for Well, vehicle? hang on a second. Doesn't the private sector, they can sell optional insurance in BC? Technically, they can, right. but they are denied any data on what's going on in the market. They, they aren't able to access your driving history. They don't know. You know, they have to take you at face value if you come in and say you've never had a claim. They have to assume you're telling the truth. We've only got two companies in this province that compete with ICBC in any sense of the word in optional auto insurance versus 200 insurers in the rest of this country doing so. Wow. You know, we need, and okay. all it means is you just need to give them the data that they need, the data that they have in every other province. They will come here, they will price their insurance, and they, okay. I can guarantee you they will beat ICBC every step of the way. Okay, it's an interesting debate. We're going to see where it goes forward here in the days ahead. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. That is Aaron Sutherland, Insurance Bureau of Canada, and he represents the private insurance companies. Because we all understand that Donald Trump is the greatest threat to this country in the modern history of this country, that he's a fraud, that he's a liar, that he's undermining American democracy. We're going to have Democrats coming together, but the trick is, which candidate can reach out and bring new people into the political process who can create the excitement and the energy for young people to come in? I think that's our campaign. All right, yeah, that's Bernie Sanders. This is Mike Smith in for Simi today, and that's Bernie Sanders. I think he kind of nailed it there, that it really is about which candidate for the Democratic Party can get new people coming over to support the Democrats as they try to beat Donald Trump in a presidential election later this year. Well, I'll tell you what, tonight is going to tell quite a tale. It is Super Tuesday, 14 states and one U.S. territory voting today. It means about one-third of all the Democratic delegates up for grabs tonight. So far, Bernie Sanders in the lead here for the Democratic nomination. But Joe Biden, of course, the former vice president, he's got some momentum. He's coming on strong. Could Biden have a good night tonight? Or is Bernie Sanders going to keep uh, keep the lead here? Wow, let's go to America now and talk about these things. We got our po uh, political panel assembled once again. Brian Kennedy, he's the president of Can-Am Consulting in San Diego, former Canadian Press White House correspondent. Brian, welcome back. Hey, Mike. It's nice to be back. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also, Karen Cataline, sounding off radio in Colorado. Karen, it's nice to have you back, too. Good to be with you both, Mike and Brian. 
Thank you, Karen. Brian, let me go to you first. Bernie Sanders what, and versus Joe Biden. Is that what this boils down to tonight, or could we get any kind of a surprise with Elizabeth Warren or Mike Bloomberg, or is it ba- basically these two guys now? Well, you know, a week ago I would have said this could be Biden's swan song tonight. Mm. However, you know, a week's a long time in politics, and look what happened just in three days. You know, I thought Biden was dead and buried, but now he's a threat to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, I would have thought a couple of days ago, would take more than the lion's share of delegates tonight. That may not happen. That makes this so interesting. Now, he may win in California, but if Biden and Bloomberg or even Elizabeth Warren get over that 15% threshold, those delegates get split up. And Bernie might not go home with the haul he expected. And he's also got problems in Texas. Now, he was leading by a pretty good margin last week. Now it's neck and neck with Biden. So you're right. Biden is coming on. Sanders has got to be worried because at the end of the night, if Biden is still within 100 to 150 delegates behind Bernie Sanders, Sanders is going to be in deep trouble. And here we go. He's going to start whining that the Democrat establishment is out to get him because we'll have a contested convention. So he's almost like Trump. Trump has always said, you know, they were always out to get him during his 2016 uh, primary campaign. And it was the system was rigged against him. And here's Trump out there supporting Bernie, saying, oh, Bernie's going to be part. They're going to coup. They're going to have a coup against Bernie. So I can see why Trump wants Bernie to run. He wants him to win so he can beat him in the uh, fall election. And if Bernie doesn't run, I think Trump hopes that Bernie will tell his followers to don't go out and vote. Or the last thing I'll say on this, he would hope that maybe Bernie's going to say, hey, I'm going to run as an independent. Oh, yeah. Either way, Trump comes out ahead. Okay, Karen, what are you watching tonight? (laughs) I am watching the Democrats desperate and hysterical as they've been ever since Donald Trump was elected, starting first with what we heard Bernie, the radical communist. He's not even a democratic socialist because there is no such animal. He's a communist. And the rest of the people running are really not that different. Well, you know, he honeymooned in the Soviet Union, and suddenly the Democrats are terrified of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders saying that Donald Trump is the biggest threat to America is preposterous. He is. So that's pure projection. And basically, I'm sitting on the sidelines because I have never seen a weaker, more pathetic group of candidates. Uh, (laughs) Nobody uh, is going to say absolutely Donald Trump will win, mostly because the Democrats always have tricks up their sleeve. Um, And, Brian, uh, Democrats were proven to cheat Bernie out of the nomination the last time, both with giving Hillary the answers to questions, and suddenly Donna Brazil is now uh, right. completely rehabilitated and uh, cheated him out okay. with the superdelegates. So we've proven, we've seen that Democrats are desperate for power. They're desperate to do anything they can to take the presidency away from Donald Trump. And the only one with okay. any enthusiasm. And with a positive message is Donald Trump, which they hate. Okay, okay, okay. They hate let me, positive let me go, messages. Let, Brian, let me go. Let's talk about uh, Biden for a minute, because I think Biden's got the momentum here, and I think he's going to end up as the Democratic nominee. But Biden has a habit 
uh, putting his foot in his mouth, kind of stumbling and bumbling, making gaffes. Now, have a little listen to this. This is from a tweet that Trump put out, some highlights of sort of stumbling, bumbling Joe Biden here. Just have a little listen to this. 150 million people have been killed since 2007. My name is Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If you'd like to see, help out. If you agree with me, go to Joe 30330. We choose truth over facts. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. <laughs> I think you get the idea, Brian. Now, that, that's a Trump tweet, but you got to admit, Biden kind of stumbles over his words a lot. Your thoughts? Well, you know, first of all, you know, I'm not going to stick up for Joe Biden, but also you got to remember he's had a stuttering problem all his life. Yeah. And I think he gets caught up in a lot of that. And it's a serious problem for him. And I didn't even know it until it, someone mentioned it during the campaign. Yeah, he's, he's had speech problems all of his life. And it still hasn't obviously been corrected. But you know what? That's what Trump's going to run. However, if I ask Joe Biden, where do the Kansas City Chiefs play football? He's going to tell me what state they play in. Unlike Trump, who didn't even know what state the Chiefs played in in football. And one that, you know, so what does that tell me? He couldn't even find it on a map if he looked for it. But tells in any you nothing. Case, I think Biden, tells you nothing. Biden down the road, oh, hold on, Biden down the road is a, is a threat to Sanders. However, Michael Bloomberg has spent somewhere upwards of about $500 million on this campaign, and tonight is his first go-around with delegates at hand. So we're going to see okay. how he does, because he hurts uh, Joe Biden if he starts taking a lot of delegates, because those delegates would have gone to Biden. Okay, Karen Cataline, Michael, Blo- Michael Bloomberg has been uh, had, some, had a, a difficult campaign here, I think, and we'll, it, it will be interesting to see how he does tonight. Your, your thoughts on these Democratic candidates? Well, I've written a lot about Joe, uh, about Bloomberg in particular. I think that every single one of the candidates, starting with the whole lineup of, what, 25, one was more pathetic and frightening than the next. They're socialists. They're radicals. They're trying to meet their base, which is AOC and Ilhan Omar. And they've painted themselves into a corner. As it regards Michael Bloomberg, yeah. It's hard uh, to dislike them more than the next, but I got to tell you, Michael Bloomberg has got to be one of the most arrogant, most detestable human beings I've ever seen. I lived <laughs> in New York. I don't know if it, now it wasn't during Bloomberg, but anybody. I wrote a piece about how uh, he wants to control others because he doesn't know how to control himself. Anybody who thinks that it's his job and his purview to tell other people what size soda they can drink and whether they can listen to earbuds is a dictator in the making. Donald Trump has never been a dictator even remotely like that. In fact, every one of his policies is to give more power back to the individual and to stop taking it from government. Ryan, 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 real quick. Hold on here. Donald Trump. If you don't get hired unless you kiss that ring of his and swear loyalty, otherwise, if you don't, you're not hired. Where do you get and that? If you are hired and you well, don't now, you're back fired. That up. Okay, That's guys. He's, Trump. he's hired words, more people to agree to him with him than okay, anybody. Guys, guys, guys. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insist you don't talk over each other, but here's what we'll do. I'm going to take a quick break. But uh, she was really mean to Minnie Mike, I'll tell you, the way she treated him. He didn't know what hit him. She's going, oh, get me off of this stage. Get me off. Get me off of this stage. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for some is U.S. President Donald Trump there going after Michael Bloomberg running for the Democratic nomination or, or as Trump calls him, Mini Mike. As is usual with Trump, he comes up with uh, nicknames for his opponents. So he's got Mini Mike, Sleepy Joe for Joe Biden, uh, Crazy Bernie for Bernie Sanders. And his base, uh, when he's doing his rallies, uh, they just love it up. These Trump, the Trump supporters love it when Trump is on the attack like that. Getting everybody laughing. Brian, when you watch Trump, is there part of you laughs at him? I mean, he, he, do you admit he's kind of funny sometimes, or do you think he's just like, wh- wh- how do you characterize his uh, his approach here and the, these sort of attacks and mocking? Well, I think he does that purposely. Eh? I think he's very bright or smart doing that because, you know, he puts these nicknames on him. It yeah. gins up his base, which he loves. I don't know why the Democrats haven't come out and said, okay, you're a corrupt Don. That's yeah. what I'd be calling him, corrupt Don. And just keep calling him that and calling him that. But they don't want you to want to get into the name calling. But I think, it, you know, Trump does that to, you know, gin up his base. And, and by the way, him calling me Mike Bloomberg, Bloomberg's worth 10 times the amount of money Donald Trump is worth. Bloomberg hasn't gone bankrupt a number of times like Donald Trump has. Bloomberg hasn't lost $450, $15 million given to him by his dad like Trump did. So that's, he may want to call him Mini Mike, but i got to tell you right now, Bloomberg is far richer and I think far smarter than Donald Trump will ever be. Okay, Karen, I know you're probably dying to get in there, but let me just that's, go quick. Let me just go quickly. I'm sorry, phone. that's just hilarious. This is a Democrat or someone who loves Democrats who hate billionaires and who hate rich people unless they got a D after their name. Uh, last time I checked, being in business and winning and losing money is not a sin and a crime. Brian, you tend to be so generous of Biden saying the most preposterous, insane, and almost uh, uh, things that show that he may have a little touch of dementia. But Donald Trump can't do anything right. Democrats didn't just call names. They tried to frame him with phony FISA warrants. So don't tell me Democrats uh, haven't tried everything they could to destroy this man and they've come up okay. empty. Okay, let's go to the phone lines. Jimmy and Surrey. Hey, Jimmy. Yeah, hey, I, I thank you for having a, a panel that's, you know, on two opposite spectrums for, for the, you know, for a change. I don't know if a lot of, a lot of your other hosts don't do that. Uh, Mike, uh, the fact is, if people, if the Democrats decided to put a label on Dawn, like corrupt Dawn or the Dawn, people will still love it. People, once you love a character like Donald Trump, there's no going back. The Democrats are, are just too easily hateable. And stop making excuses for Biden now. Oh, uh, a speech impairment. This is the idiot that challenged Trump. To, I'll take you to the wood chip like he's some old southern good old boy. Now he wants to have people feel sorry for him. Forget it. It was a fair okay. fight. The Trumpster won. Love okay, it. Okay, Jimmy. Thank you for the call. Brian, can any of these Democratic candidates beat Trump? Any of them? Yeah, Joe Biden is the one. Believe it or not, I said that right from the beginning. That's the one that Trump fears the most is Biden. And I'll tell you why he fears him. Because Biden is well-liked in the Rust Belt states, like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, 
states that Trump has to win. And Biden is very, very popular there. Unlike Hillary Clinton, who didn't even visit half of them, Biden is going to, you know, if he does get the nomination, he'll be a true test for Trump. And you know what? May the best man win then. You know, because I've always said I didn't like impeachment to begin with. I said, if you want to beat Donald Trump, then go to the polls, put your best person forward, be it a male or a female for uh, the Democrats, and beat him at the polls. If you can't do that, then you don't deserve. You know, okay, Karen, we just got it. about a Karen. We got about a minute left. I think Biden probably is the toughest challenge for Trump. Your thoughts? I don't think so at all. I don't think there's anybody who's a tough challenge for Trump. They don't want to say that because they don't want to count their votes before they're cast. But Biden has this glaring elephant in the living room. It's called uh, Hunter Biden, and a level of corruption uh, that is. Off the scale, the Democrats have a habit of accusing Donald Trump of precisely what they do. They couldn't prove quid pro quo with Donald Trump, but quid pro Joe actually admitted to it on video. None of these candidates can remotely. I don't think Donald Trump is afraid of them, but I think we should let Democrats think so because they are so deluded and they live in such a bubble that they need a comeuppance the likes of which we've never seen before, All right. and that's what I'm hoping for. All right, right guys. Can yeah, I just Brian, say real quick? Like very quickly. Okay, 2018, where was Donald Trump? Every place he went, he lost the House. So let's get serious. He wasn't on the ballot, as you would have said about Obama, who also lost in the midterms. He wasn't on the ballot. Donald Trump will not win. Thank you, guys. Thank you. They, they'll probably keep duking it out off the air here, but I appreciate both their times today. Uh, Karen Cataline, Spouting Off Radio Colorado. Brian Kennedy, Can-Am Consulting. He's in San Diego, former White House correspondent. Appreciate their time. Let's talk about the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, the meeting that took place on the weekend, the anti-pipeline blockades. Uh, some blockades are still up, predominantly a one in uh, Quebec right now. Despite the agreement we saw negotiated on the weekend between the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en who oppose the coastal gas link pipeline and the ministers of Indigenous Relations for British Columbia and for Canada. We still don't know what's in this agreement. Apparently it's an historic sweeping agreement, we're told. The public hasn't been told what's in it. Let's check in now with Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. He's the leader of the opposition in the legislature. Thank you for coming in once again. Thanks, Mike. Uh, what, are you, what are your concerns here right now going forward here? That with This meeting we were told was held to try and diffuse a situation where we saw blockades of railroad tracks, bridges, highways, ferry terminals, ports, you name it, causing economic damage in the country. A lot of hope that this meeting that took place in Smithers on the weekend would help resolve that. They come out, they've got a deal, but we still see there are blockades still up, especially one in Quebec. Your thoughts on the situation right yeah, now? Yeah, I mean, it was admirable to go into the meeting to try and resolve three different things. Is Coastal GasLink going to go ahead and get the work done? That's number one. The rights and title claims of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and all the rest of the Wet'suwet'en people, that's difficult because there are lots of people involved in the town of Smithers, and you name it. It's complicated. But nonetheless, it's a good idea to get it, something done there to move yeah. the ball down the field. Number three, let's get rid of these blockades. Right. So the concern all of us have, I think, that we say these federal minister and the NDP minister come out and say, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, just give us two weeks. And then you guys in the media start to ask a few questions, 
And more info came out, like in the government press release, saying all parties at the table recognize that the differences relating to Coastal Gas Link project remain. Huh? Yeah. So I guess that's number one was off the table. And then yesterday in the legislature here, John Horgan said, no, no, the Gas Link pipeline project is all fully permitted and it will proceed. Well, that's not what you said two days ago in a press release. So did something happen in between? Well, in the press release, they're saying there's still no agreement from the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en on the pipeline. That doesn't mean the pipeline's not going to proceed, though, right? Well, I mean, I mean, the gov- I mean, the government's saying the pipeline has been approved. The pipe's going in the ground. The company is saying they're gone back to work. The police have resumed their patrols up there. So what's the problem? So far, so good yeah. on number one. Yeah. And so the differences remain. So Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, we as British Columbians say the vast majority of people support this thing and appears to be proceeding to some degree. Let's hope that number one's in order in spite of what it says in the government press release. Okay, so that's number one, the pipeline. Number two, the land issue. You know, the the Silcotine deal in the the Chilcotin country took 10 years in the courts, ended up with 1,700 square kilometers of land being allocated under this Aboriginal title. structure, right. which is a totally valid thing. The Supreme Court of Canada said so in 2014. Yeah. So we say, okay, is this the same thing as that, or are you yeah. talking about something else? We don't know. Yeah. And for us down here in Victoria or folks in the Lower Mainland to say, well, that's like 500 miles away. I'm not sure what it means to me. But if you're working for CN or Coastal Gaslink or you live in the town of Smithers or Houston or you do trucking up and down Highway 16, you say, well, hold on a second. Who's dealing on my behalf about my town, my neighborhood, where I live, my uh, dealership that I have on the highway that sells tires to people? Everybody involved needs to have some sense that somebody's looking out for. You want to see the deal. We'd like right? to see I mean, the deal. That this, it should be made public so the public knows that there's, there's, there's interest out here outside of the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en who obviously have a direct stake in this, in this. But there's private business, there's municipalities, there's tourism operators, there's... Uh, there's forestry, there's there's pipelines. I mean, there's all kinds of people who've got an interest in what's in this agreement. So do you think the agreement should be made public? Should it be put in front of the legislature of British Columbia for a vote? Absolutely, yeah. once we know what it is. And yeah. that's, I think, the real bugbear here, is yeah. these guys went behind closed doors, came out, three issues to cover, the pipeline, that seems to be okay for now. Yeah. The land, we have no idea what they've done. And then you get to the issue of... Well, who gets to vote in this or ratify or has a word or a say in it? Because all of us have become familiar with the the situation up there. I gather there are about 5,000 people who would fall into the Wet'suwet'en people. And some of them are with the hereditary chiefs. There are five or six elected band councils. Right. And then there are these matriarchs as well. And we've seen on TV, you know, you know this because the business you're in, there's huge disagreement within that sure. community. Yeah, the d- community's divided on it. So the rest of us think, well, gee, how are they going to do that? Are they going to have a giant meeting of 5,000 people? Are they going to have a referendum like they did for the Nishka thing back yeah. in 98? How are they going to go about this? And it may seem like it's an esoteric thing that's just up to the Wet'suwet'en, but hold on. No, it isn't. It affects the Port au Prince Rupert. It affects the Coastal Gasling Pipeline. It affects lots and lots of things. So everybody's got a ton of questions and we're just operating in the dark here. So Let's, even if we couldn't see the terms of the deal that they're talking about, tell us how you're going to go about ratifying and who gets to say. Let's have a listen to uh, Carolyn Bennett, who is the Federal Minister of Indigenous Relations. And here she is, I think, trying to explain what this deal is about. Let's have a listen. We 
I believe, have uh, come uh, to a uh, proposed arrangement uh, that uh, that will uh, also honour the the protocols of the uh, of the Wasotan um, people and clans, and uh, obviously that that what we've worked on this weekend needs to go back to those clans, and then uh, we have. We have uh, agreed that as ministers, we will come back to sign um, in uh, if if it, it meet is agreed upon um, by by the nation. It doesn't give me any comfort <laughs> because I'm listening to that and I'm like, I'm not sure she knows herself what's going on. I mean, she's obviously initialed an agreement, and she said that it's going to be put in front of the Wet'suwet'en clans for some sort of ratification, and then the the ministers for both governments will then go up and sign it. Yeah, we're t- we're told about what we don't know. Yeah, so Fair question. So so what do you so what do you think should be done here? I mean, advancing on rights and title for for this First Nation, I think, is a good thing. Don't you agree on that? Yeah, this yeah. has been a pretty hot situation, and nobody wants these rail blockades. I sure don't want ambulance access to VGH blocked by somebody who lights a fire in the intersection of Camby and Broadway. So if the blockades can be ended and we can move on with life, that's a very good thing, and that's the rule of law that Canada has to be built on. Point number one. Point number two, then, is, well, how do you get there? What's this thing you've signed? And most of us would say, okay, it's with the Wet'suwet'en in some description, not sure who's involved, give them a little bit of time to land that and figure out what it's about. But I think all of us are going to get pretty bothered in about two weeks unless there's a lot more clarity on this thing. Give them the grace. Give them a bit of time to sort out where it's going. But at the same time, I would like to know from the NDP government here in John Horgan, what's the process for deciding if this is the right answer? Does it come to the legislature? Is it made public? Or is it going to be like the Mountain Caribou thing, where they signed secret deals with the Salto and the West Moberly First Nations up in the peace country and never asked anybody in the towns nearby? Okay, speaking of Horgan, let's have a listen to Horgan. Now, this is Horgan talking about, you know, this is a government that supports this pipeline. He has continued to say the pipeline is permitted, the pipe is going to go in the ground. The government hasn't really wavered in its support for this pipeline, but he's got a problem here with the blockades and the protests. Here's Horgan. We recognize the right of individuals to protest. We recognize the rights of those across the country who wanted to voice their concerns about this project. However, it has been my view that LNG Canada has shown they understand the importance of consultation and meaningful reconciliation with First Nations, and that's why they have signed agreements with every First Nation along the pipeline corridor. This project represents great opportunity for Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples alike but it also recognizes and highlights the challenges of reconciliation. Okay, he's not a little nervous there to me. He's in a tough spot. Oh, he's in a very but tough he, spot. But he has not wavered from supporting this pipeline, which you must be pleased with that. I mean, you support the pipeline too. Yeah. Right. If we see a good outcome from this two-week gap, yeah. as citizens of British Columbia, we should look at each other and say, okay, so... Coastal Gas Lake's able to build the pipeline. That's a good thing. There's peace, order, and good government in the the Maurice River area where all the fuss was. The Wet'suwet'en are moving ahead with resolving land claims and getting stuff sorted out, and there are no more blockades. High five. You and I would have to say, gee, that's great. But I think we're all a little concerned that of that list, we have a whole lot of unknown and no assurance from anybody of what's really going on. We just don't know. 
And, you know, they come out and say, oh, yes, we've initialed an agreement. And you and I say, about what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be, be good to get some clarity on this. I'd like to see the agreement. I think most people would like to see the agreement and know what kind of ratification process is, is going to unfold here and yeah. what it means for people who have an interest in the area up there. But would you say that things seem to have settled down a little bit? There's, there is there is still a key blockade in place in Quebec. I, still, I believe it's still up today. But we haven't seen a lot of the blockades in British Columbia, at least the last few days. Things seem to have calmed down a little bit. Would you agree? The big question for all of us is, are we in the eye of the hurricane right now? In two weeks, we're going to see another dust-up. Obviously, as Canadians, we don't want that to happen. But all of that depends on what happened in secret behind closed doors in Smithers. The federal minister zipped off to Ottawa and disappeared and didn't actually leave anything on the table, did she? Okay, so and you so, want to see the text of the agreement. Would that be a well, good first step? Well, we're going to have to see it sooner or later because no. it has profound effects all over B.C. There are now 204 First Nations in British Columbia. And if I were representing one of them or a member of one of them, I'd say, yeah, we want the same treatment that what Sutton got. Yeah. So this could get complicated real fast. Okay. So I think you know the question for us right away, not waiting for two weeks, is what is this agreement about? Is it about land? Is it about hunting and fishing? Is it about transportation, like pipelines and railways? Is it about not blockading things? What's the agreement about? They don't have to give us the details, okay. but we sure would like to know what it's about. And also, who's going to have a say in whether it's a good agreement? Thank you for coming in. Great to see you, Mike. That is Thanks. Andrew Wilkinson. He's the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. He's the leader of the opposition in, in the House, uh, uh, voicing his concerns around this deal, which we still don't know the details of it. And if, like you said, if it's a good thing and it solves the problems, that's great. But we'll see maybe if it causes more problems down the road.